you would go ahead and take your Bibles out to the book of Daniel where we resume our study this morning. We have been making our way through Daniel now for several weeks and today we find ourselves in Daniel 4 as we continue to move through these earlier more more narrative uh, sections of Daniel before we get to the prophecies that will come of course later on in the book. But of course even within these narrative sections we're grasping the reality that there are prophecies within them. So within the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar we're seeing prophecy and we're seeing God telling uh, essentially this pagan king, this is what's going to not only become of you, but this is what is going to become in all the world. <laughs> so we're seeing, um, as, and as the book of Daniel unfolds more and more, we get more of a global messianic focus, which is why Daniel is such a beautiful book when it comes to seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Of course, Jesus picking up the language, calling himself the Son of Man from the book of Daniel itself. And when we're looking at Daniel, we're going to even come across this theme just this very morning, looking at at the lordship of Yahweh. Well, when Daniel is pointing us to the lordship of of Yahweh and to his faithfulness, what is the culmination of the expression of his lordship and faithfulness? It is the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh to not only save his people, but to rule over them as Lord, leading them to victory. And so when we see Daniel... Daniel is asking us the question, who is Lord? Yahweh is Lord. Daniel is asking, or is, and then is answering, how does Yahweh so, show himself faithful? Well, yes, he delivers from the fiery furnace. He de- delivers in the lion's den. He enables his people to, to see visions and interpret dreams. But how does God definitively prove his lordship? By sending his son, who is his express image, to the earth for the good of his people and the glory of God. All of that we have in the making in the book of Daniel, so that when Jesus at the end of Luke tells the disciples walking down the road that all of the scriptures bear witness to me, he speaks truly. This morning we're looking at Daniel 4. As we know, we just finished up Daniel 3, the whole fiery furnace incident and how God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego within the flames. He did not keep them from the flame, but he met them in the flame and brought them out of the flame. And so now we transition back to what is a familiar theme in Daniel already, which is dreams. And this won't be the last dream that we deal with and the last vision that we deal with. Daniel is a book of dreams and visions and prophecy. And so even within the narratival stories of Daniel, you have God expressing truth prophetically for future and then prophetically for the moment. Let's keep in mind that prophecy is not always just a future telling. Prophecy can be a foretelling in a moment, telling the truth in a moment. And so that's why we would say some preachers are more prophetic than others. Without further delay, let us now turn our attention to Daniel chapter 4. We look at here as as the, um, the second dream of Nebuchadnezzar, but it's here where Daniel lays out the dream. So without further delay, Daniel chapter 4. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid, and as I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. 
So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me and that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream. They could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom the spirit of the holy gods and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Thus, chop down the tree, and lop off its branches, and strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers and the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets, it, sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me or not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his best blessing. Please pray with me. God, thank you for this word. It's powerful, it's truth, it's beauty, it's richness. And thank you that it calls us to something, to not just sit idly by while it's read and have no response, but you have called us in the power of the Holy Spirit to respond by remembering your lordship, remembering your lordship in the midst of a culture that wants to see it pass away. So, Father, give us boldness, I pray, and as we hear this morning, may our hearts be set aflame with the power and truth of Scripture. It's through Christ I pray. Amen. From a historical standpoint, kings and queens are a dime a dozen. You spend any time reading history, and there were kings and queens all through history. They still remain around to this day. And so there's nothing memorable about most kings. Now, you have some kings or queens who set themselves apart, and we remember them. But by and large, we don't tend to remember kings and queens so much, but we do tend to remember emperors. When someone ascends to the status of emperor, they tend to stand out in our minds. Perhaps, maybe even as I mentioned the word emperor, someone immediately came to your mind. If not one of the Caesars, somebody else. But what, what is most readily in my mind when I think of emperors are the Caesars in Rome. Because these are men, uh, starting with Julius Caesar, who ascended to a height that kind of was beyond just being a king of a kingdom. These were, they ruled empires. They defeated kings. Kings came and bowed down before emperors. As emperors, they, they stood out. As, as kings bowed before Caesar and Rome, he made kings, local leaders, subservient to himself and to the Roman government. In other words, when you look at an emperor 
what we're looking at in human form is someone who, a ruler who rules over rulers. It's exactly the type of nobility that they wanted to have. Now, of course, we say, well, most of the Caesars stand out primarily for their moral failings, and they do. There were some awful, awful Roman Caesars who did horrible things. But they also stand out because they achieved a status in human history that most humans don't achieve. They ruled over people who ruled. When we think about this, we need to understand that as powerful as the most powerful man in the world is, that man is still a subservient power to the power of the living God. And that is exactly the point that Daniel is making here. So we live in a world where people leverage political power in our own day, and they act as if like they're the only game in town, and if we don't do what they say, we're going to fall at their mercy, and we need to say, God rules over you, sir. God rules over you, madam. Scripture tells us plainly that what power you have is for a time, and it's gone. God rules eternally. And so as Christians, why do we have confidence in the public square? Why do we have confidence when our reputation seems to deteriorate in public? Because we remember that this dream, like it was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over it, the lowliest of men, that we remember there is a power that's greater than this. What we're looking at, there's something that is even over that that has to give us courage and hope. When we look at Daniel, certainly we've come across this already, that faithfulness is a key theme. You can't miss that theme in Daniel. We saw it in the fiery furnace. We saw it in the interpretation of dreams. We'll see it again in the lion's den. So yes, we cannot miss the faithfulness theme of Daniel. But another theme of Daniel that is equally key and and continues to run through it is the lordship of, of Yahweh, Yahweh's lordship. And so often when you're looking at Daniel, these two key themes, faithfulness and lordship, go together. Why? How? Well, who is Lord? Yahweh is Lord. Will you live out that reality? Will you live out that truth? Yes or no? And so when we're looking at these two twin themes in Daniel, lordship, faithfulness, they're intertwined. They're married. They're bedfellows. They go together because... More, more generally speaking, if we are going to be faithful, or let me put it this way, if we're going to proclaim and live out the lordship of Christ in our culture, it means we are going to have to be faithful, faithful to God by the power that he gives us. Every single test in the book of Daniel, every one, every single one, there's the underlying question, who is Lord? Who is Lord? Who is Lord? Who is Lord? Is Yahweh Lord or is Nebuchadnezzar Lord or is Belshazzar Lord or is what other, other king, are they Lord? So that's the question that Dan, these tests constantly ask us. What is the second question? Is in the face of this challenge to lordship, will the people of God stand firm? Will the people of Yahweh be faithful? Will the people of Yahweh follow no matter the costs? Those are the two twin questions that we constantly see going back and forth in this book. Not just this book, but in whole of Scripture. So Daniel is a great little microcosm of the Scriptures themselves. Daniel 4 is about dreams. It's about visions. And Nebuchadnezzar is no stranger to dreams and visions. We've already come across it in this book. So we know that we're looking at a theme or a reality that we've kind of traversed already. What is God doing here? He's doing something very specific, which tells us he is reminding the king that the Lord, that is Yahweh, 
the Lord of lords, that is Yahweh, the Lord of lords, rules over all, even Nebuchadnezzar. That's his point. Nebuchadnezzar, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how great you are, you are ruled. You are not sovereign. You are temporary. You submit to another power. Like the story we just read, like other parts of Daniel, we get questions from the broader academic world, what's called text criticism. So many people criticize this because they say this is not attested anywhere else, not, not in artifacts that we found in Babylon that would kind of date to around this time period. Nothing acknowledges this story right here. And there's a real practical reason that would be true. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar here is not something that's very becoming of a king. In fact, go back and see how many battles Julius Caesar lost when he was vying to make Rome a global empire. Well, if you read his history books, he didn't lose a one. He never reported on his losses because he wanted to ramp up his name among the people. It seems reasonable and perfectly reasonable to me that, of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want his people to know that he was subdued by the living God, made to live like an animal in the fields, uh, absent of his mind and of his reason. But that was preserved for us in history, preserved in the book of Daniel. And because the Holy Spirit inspired this story, we have absolute confidence that what we're reading is the truth of God. Let God be true and every man be a liar. That has to be our philosophy when it comes to Scripture. Scripture is attested by God and the Holy Spirit, so therefore we believe it. Daniel kept the record, and so we accept it. Well, with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this. It is Yahweh who rules over those who rule. It is Yahweh, it is the Lord who rules over those who rule. What a poignant picture we have of this when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate at the end of his life. That scene, if you haven't read it in a while, I'd commend you, I would commend it to you. Go back and look at it. As, as Pontius Pilate, as Pilate is questioning Jesus, and Jesus stands silent, it culminates with a frustration that Pilate says, don't you know that I have the power to kill you or to save you? Do you remember Jesus' answer in that moment? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. What a powerful statement. In a moment, Jesus is literally, this is a life and death situation. He's facing death. He's facing condemnation. What does he do? He makes sure to set the record straight. He makes sure that this man knows that he, his power is derived from the Lord. In fact, he's letting Pontius Pilate know that you may think you're obeying the will of the people. We are following the will of the living God. And so we get this little scene that reminds us, Pilate answers to the Caesar, Caesar answers to Yahweh. And so what a perfect, perfect, perfect picture we have of this. Well, this morning we're dealing with visions, I said, very similarly to chapter 2 of visions of truth. What is God doing in this vision? He's laying out truth so that Nebuchadnezzar can understand God's will, the reality of what God is doing in the earth, that Babylon, as powerful as it is, is but a speck of dust in eternity. We remember it. We think of how great it is, the, the hanging gardens and Nebuchadnezzar at his full power, and it is as nothing compared to the kingdom of God. And so we're looking at this vision, 
And as we've already said, that God rules even over the mighty. That's what he's telling him. This is also a consistent theme of Scripture. What's one other glaring place where we see this? It's got to be the Exodus. Pharaoh thinks he's got the might, the power, and Moses comes and with ten signs and wonders by the power of God reduces him to nothing and, and ushers out the people of God, the Israelites, from Egyptian power. And the question that every one of those plagues asks, who is Lord, Yahweh or this pagan deity? Who is Lord, Yahweh or this pagan deity? And every answer we get is Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. So this is a theme that we see again and again. Well, as we look at chapter 4, chapter 4 starts in a very peculiar way. You may have thought, this is odd. So we've just had what's happened in the deliverance from the fiery furnace. We saw Nebuchadnezzar kind of make make a glowing report of the God of the Hebrews. And then chapter 4 starts where he's making this declaration, first peace be multiplied to you, and then it seems good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Who could say it better? That's true. It's absolutely true. But when we look at this, I want you to know This doesn't go so much with what precedes it, although it kind of does. Really, we're getting the end of this whole of chapter 4 at the beginning. We're finding out what Nebuchadnezzar's response to the dream, what God did to him, Daniel's capacity to interpret all those things that happen that follow these three verses. This is the sum of that. So we're getting the end at the beginning, so to speak. He's giving his note of praise in response to what happened. But it's also we need to understand that I, I, I think within this note of praise, we can say he was <laughs> impressed with what happened at the fiery furnace. He recognizes there's a power of God at work that defies uh, comprehension almost. But as he's giving this praise, notice who he calls to, all peoples, nations, and languages. That little three-part thing, phrase, is exactly the three-part phrase that he used in Daniel 3 to call people to idol worship. So isn't it interesting now, the people that he called to idol worship, he is now calling to hear a proclamation of truth. I don't think that's coincidental. I think that that is very much determined by God and by what he has shown Nebuchadnezzar. Look at this. He says, peace be multiplied to you. Literally, in the Aramaic, let your peace grow. Peace would be a common greeting in this time period. You know, peace be to you. It was a common greeting, and and on after that, and still you can hear it said in Israel, Shabbat Shalom, which is rest in peace. When he says this, he says it's common greeting, but I want us to understand, why does it get inserted here? Is it just a greeting, or is there something larger to it? Well, given the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by the dream, alarmed, it says, And the human need for peace, Nebuchadnezzar wanted the interpretation for what purpose? So he'd be at peace in his heart. Our desire for peace, I've said this before, we go chasing it down a lot of different unhealthy avenues when we want peace. He is speaking to a human need on the very end, this thing that people ache for. So much of your life is built around an aching in your own spirit for a measure of peace. And that is why we pursue all sorts of things that are not Godward. Because if that thing will give me peace and I can feel at rest, then I'll be happy. 
Nebuchadnezzar, in some sense, though doing something that was quite common, is also scratching a human itch, that desire for peace. Of course, where is Daniel telling us peace is found? Not in Nebuchadnezzar, not in all the riches of Babylon, not in all the pleasures that Babylon has to offer. Peace is found in the Lord. That is why three men could walk into a fiery furnace or one young man can be thrown into a lion's den because they have peace, the very thing Nebuchadnezzar is missing. He talks about the signs and wonders of the Lord here that the Most High God has done for me. Signs and wonders. What signs and wonders? Well, we've already recounted them, the fiery furnace, dreams. That present God is about to show him his own glory and his own life. And I love the fact that he doesn't say the signs and wonders and leaves it nebulous. Nebulous. He says, the signs and wonders that God or the Most High God has done for me. He personalizes it. This is not just this nebulous thing that happened. This is personal. Yahweh has intersected the life of Nebuchadnezzar in a personal way. And what is his response? What is he do? What is he doing right now? He's talking about it. He's proclaiming it. He's not just sitting back on these experiences and say, well, you know, that was really cool. I saw three men walk out of a blazing, fiery furnace. He's saying, no, 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 no. The vision of these things has impacted me, and I'm going to say something about it. It's powerful. Would that we all had that response when God does something powerful in our lives that our first thought is, how can I proclaim the power of God after the, these moments or in this moment? So that's where we are with it. It's a powerful thing that he's doing. Now, I want to I go ahead and say this. There, we can't say how deeply Nebuchadnezzar was changed from this. There is no indication that he went away from this, became a prophet, and was a solid man of God. None. There's no indication of that. I have no idea how deeply he was changed. But the example here is that the power of God led to a confession. It led to a proclamation. And at the very least, we can look at that and say, hey, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when I see his power at work, how can it compel me more and more to boldly proclaim and not just remain quiet? So I think in that sense, it's good. What is his confession? Well, that God, Yahweh, has an everlasting kingdom, and that his dominion endures. From, when you see from generation to generation, just think forever. So you've got this kind of dual thing, an everlasting kingdom and a dominion and a for, forever dominion. Everlasting kingdom and a forever dominion. And that's his confession. It's God's kingdom. It's God's dominion that lasts. He doesn't try to qualify it. And at least in this sense, he wisely doesn't try to put himself up He's recognizing, finally, perhaps, my kingdom may end. That kingdom doesn't. That's an encouraging thought in a world that tries to broker power to rule people out of fear and greed. We say, yes, you're offering something that will end. Jesus offers something that never ends. So the rest of this paragraph, in fact, the remainder of this chapter is really focused in on the dream. And so in verses 4 to 18, we really start dealing with the vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw. What is the point? Showing that God is in control, not Nebuchadnezzar. That's the point. God is in control, not Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this opens up, it sets a context for us. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. What is he telling you? Life was good. I was comfortable. I was happy. 
I like the way things were going. At this point, he's older in his reign. As a crown prince and a general in his father's army and as a young king, he conquered much of the known world, and he did so ruthlessly. He's enjoying the spoils of war. He's been made rich. He's the king. He gets what he wants. I was at ease. I was enjoying my hard-fought and won rest. But then he says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in the bed, the fancies and visions of my head, they alarmed me. Two words there that juxtapose what he's just said in the, in the fourth verse, that he was frightened and alarmed. So he goes from ease, prosperity, to being frightened and alarmed. Why the change? What happened right then that says that flipped the switch? Well, he says, I saw fancies in the visions of my head, which are very vague. But as we read, we understand what had he been confronted with? The truth of what was about to happen. He'd been front confronted with the truth. He'd been confronted with the reality that my life is a vapor. My kingdom can come to an end. I can lose everything at the flip of a switch. Everything that I've worked hard at, you know, keeping yourself at the center. Why is he ultimately cursed to go out into the field as he will be? Because eventually he's going to say, I did all this. I am great. I'm the one who established all my own greatness. And God says, you're judged. So yeah, the truth. Now he's just praised Yahweh and confessed the truth of Yahweh, but the same truth about the same God is driving him into fear and trembling. The truth has a tendency to do that, which is why so many people reject it. Well, when we start talking about truth in an objective sphere, and truth is objective, especially the truth of God is objective, there's a reason people don't want it. And it's a real simple reason, a very base simple reason. If we are going to imbibe truth, if we are going to accept something as true, and my life doesn't line up with that truth, it demands a transformation on my part. And so if I don't want to be transformed, if I want to seek my flesh, if I want to seek pleasure, then what do I do? I keep the truth at arm's length. When I was in seminary, Dr. Bruce Bogus said that when, in, a, in a class, in my apologetics class, that self-defense strategies are there for a reason. People don't want to change because I don't desire change until I'm confronted with Christ and his power. I didn't want to change until I saw how dead I was by the power of Jesus Christ. The same is true for you. So Nebuchadnezzar had it good. He was alarmed when he saw the truth. Of course, what is his response? How does he respond to this? So all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And so he lists them out, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. They could not make to me, known to me its interpretation. All right, so what are, we, what are we seeing here? Pagan wisdom. What are we learning right here? Very simply, pagan wisdom is empty. It has nothing to offer. It's not objective. It's it can't deliver the truth. It can't help Nebuchadnezzar. It can't help him see things as they are. To use a good word, a good solid word from Ecclesiastes, it's futility. There's nothing to it. It's empty. It's vapor. There's no substance to pagan wisdom. And so we see this emptiness. We see this empty counsel. And of course, the scriptures are not so subtly. They juxtapose it with Daniel. 
Well, right after that, at last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, and then he goes into that. This is not, this is not a not, this is a not so subtle comparison between what the pagans brought and what the, or what Daniel brought. The pagans are empty. They can't help. They're futile. It's nothing. What does he tell us right on the front end? Daniel is filled with the spirit of the holy gods. Of course, he articulates it in a way that's slightly incorrect. What we would say is Daniel is filled with the spirit of the holy God. That there is something fundamentally different about Daniel than all these other people. Whatever they have is not what Daniel has, and whatever Daniel has is certainly not what they have. There's an emptiness, a deadness in them. There is a fullness and a life in Daniel. In other words, this pagan king who doesn't really know the Lord can actually see the difference between these and these based on the type of wisdom that each or each of the separate categories live by. It's powerful. This is what happens when the Spirit of God fills his people and we live boldly for the Lord in amid, amid the culture. It's impossible to not see a difference. That doesn't mean we're going to be accepted. That doesn't mean we're going to be even well-liked or loved. But people will see a difference. I love how he describes him. He says in verse 9, Because I know that the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. And listen to this. And that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Literally in the Aramaic, when he says that no mystery is too difficult for you, literally what he says is, as you're not troubled by mysteries. I like that, I like that more literal rending better. You're not troubled by mysteries. Why? Why is Daniel not troubled by mysteries? A, because he's filled with God's Spirit, and he understands that there is a God who is controlling the details, so things that remain mysterious are not mysterious to him. That's one. Two, there's just a fundamental trust. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord to give him the vision before he knew he would do it. He trusts in the Lord to protect him in the lion's den, whether he knew he would or not. See, there is a fundamental trust in Daniel that sets him apart. It's a faith thing. We are drawn to men in Scripture or men in general who show displays of power. What is the source of Daniel's power? I'm going to put that in quotes. What is the source of it? It's not Daniel. It's Yahweh. How does Daniel tap into that power, the power of God working through him? He walks by faith in the Lord. It's exactly why Jesus told the disciples that when you come before those who would arrest you, the Spirit will give you the words to say, will we trust him enough to listen to the Spirit? It's a powerful picture we see again and again replicated in, in Scripture. Daniel, this man who stands out not because of who he is, but because of who the Lord is in him. Well, he recounts the dream to Daniel. He says, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Trees in Scripture are not uncommon. In fact, they have significance. If you think about when the, in Genesis, when the world begins, we're confronted with a tree, right? A tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Revelation, when the culmination of all these things happen, we're confronted with a tree, the tree of life. 
In Psalm 1, when the psalmist is comparing thus to faithful, to what is faithful, he says, we are trees by a stream. When Isaiah is talking about uh, the people of God, he calls them oaks of righteousness. So when we think about trees in Scripture, what Nebuchadnezzar sees here is not just nebulous. It's not arbitrary. God is using a picture with a people who understands what trees symbolize. They symbolize life. They symbolize strength. They symbolize endurance. They symbolize preservation. They symbolize all kinds of substance and sustenance because of their solid state that they're in and they're rooted. And so when he talks about a tree, we should say, yeah, that makes sense that God would speak to this man using nature, using a tree for what a tree brings and what a tree represents. But notice how he describes it. He says it's visible to all, that the whole earth can see it. Not just the nation of Babylon. This thing is visible to the whole world. All humans can see it. It says, the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heavens and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. So far, so good. A beautiful vision. This, the, the very picture of strength and preservation. The very picture of substance and sustenance. The very picture of majesty and beauty. This tree. What Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand that he's about to find out. It's also a picture of self-sufficient glory. Look at this tree. Look how all the world depends on it. Look at what this tree can do. Look at how great this tree is. This tree is great, isn't it? Yes, it's great. Look at the fruit. Look at the animals it shades and the bird, birds it houses. Look at the people it feeds. Look how great this tree is. Beautiful, majestic, kingly, regal, royal, unmatched. The whole earth can see it. And then we get the next part of the vision. And this is quite intentional. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, and he proclaimed loudly, or with a strong voice, literally, and said thusly, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let it be a beast's mind, but given to him, be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. So, one thing here. Watcher. Would you catch that word? You'll see it again before the, this section is over. That word is a very debated word in terms of what is mean by the word watcher. That word is used in extra biblical literature to describe divine beings. It's used scantly in some literature that is not biblical but is kind of written around the same time period to talk about particular angels. Job mentions a watcher. So there's debate in terms of what does he mean by using that word? Well, I think scripturally speaking, when we think about the word watcher, we need to understand that at least in this context, it is an angel commissioned to carry out God's judgment. That's clearly what's intended here. This watcher is assigned by God, some sort of angelic being, to come in and execute a plan of judgment against Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. 
It's hard to debate it because we need to take care to let Scripture interpret Scripture and not let extra-biblical forces inform too much what we think about words. And in this particular case, I think we need not be troubled by the word. We need to simply recognize that Daniel used a word to describe, or Nebuchadnezzar rather used a word to describe an angel commissioned by God to carry out judgment. But what does he do? We know it's judgment because what does this, this creature do? He utterly destroys the tree, utterly destroys it. This magnificent beauty, this self-sufficient sign of glory in an instant has its branches lopped off, its leaves stripped, its fruit scattered, reduced, chopped down to nothing but a stump, a stump, no glory in a stump. It's left to just simply be the remnant of something that was once glorious. Why ban the stump? Why does he say ban the stump with bronze and iron? We're not real sure. I think it's reasonably, I think we could, we could be a reasonable assumption would be to in some sense preserve that stump so that when people see that stump, it's a reminder of what was and what the power of God can do. So that when people, you know, Israel would set up stones of remembrance in the wilderness so that when they saw that stone, they would remember, well, this stump is now going to be a testament to the self-sufficient glory and how quickly it can be brought down. How quickly it can be brought down. It's a reminder of God's power. What's interesting here is the way that uh, the stump is now personified. The vision kind of shifts a little bit. So it was a tree, and then it was a stump, and then it says, you know, that the stump is going to let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. In other words, let him eat the same grass that the beasts eat, the stump. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. So we're beginning to see this, this stump now has, there's, it's personified, <laughs> has value to it in the human realm. It's interesting here that literally the Aramaic says, let his heart be changed, but I think heart, mind kind of get at the same sense of it. But then he says, <clears throat> this of course is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, that much is known, Daniel will make that plain. Then he says, further, one more thing that kind of is mysterious, let seven, and seven periods of time will pass over it. What does he mean by that? Well, there's a few options really. It could be years. He could be talking about seven years that will pass over Nebuchadnezzar. He could be talking about seasons. A particular season of, of, maybe not quite full years, but seven seasons will pass by him before he regains his right mind. Or the number seven could be symbolic, and he could just be talking about the time that God has determined for Nebuchadnezzar to live that way until God restores him. Any one of those is acceptable and fine. Whatever we say, whatever we take away from it, let us take away this. God has a set time that Nebuchadnezzar is going to experience judgment, and it'll be done when God says it's done. That's the point. That's what we take away from it. We don't have to know all the, every jot and tittle. I love this. We've already said it, but he kind of rounds out this paragraph by stating this. The sentence is by decree of the watchers. There's that word again the decision of the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest and sets over it the lowliest of men. So Brad, are you saying that God did this to show his supremacy? That's exactly what this book is telling us. Who is supreme? Not Nebuchadnezzar. Yahweh is. 
Who is true? Not Nebuchadnezzar. Yahweh is. Beloved, God does this through Scripture. Has it ever occurred to you that Joseph, of course, is captured or sold by his brothers, really, to Egypt? He's sent to Egypt. Of course, God blesses him there and gets him, uh, you know, his ability to interpret dreams, very similar to Daniel. He comes out of the pit. He becomes a servant to Pharaoh. And isn't it fascinating that God raises up a famine in the land that draws Joseph's family to Egypt to get food that at the time of Pharaoh is friendly to them? God draws them to Goshen knowing full well they're going to be enslaved there. God draws them to Goshen with a famine so that Joseph can save his people, preserve the line, and watch the people of Israel flourish so that 400 years later, Moses could come along, be raised up by God, and lead those very people out and back to the promised land. Why? Because God is supreme, Pharaoh is not. Because God is supreme, Nebuchadnezzar is not. Because God is supreme, no ruler can rival that. So we have hope this morning because it is God who reigns and it is God who establishes. Let the world come and bring what it will. And yes, they can hurt, they can harm, they can bring pain, they can make life hard and miserable. But the one thing they cannot do is take away what God has done in and for us and what God is doing. Because we can let Martin Luther, I say this all the time, we can let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So let them come and we will march to victory under the banner of Christ. God reigns in power even over the powerful. This has always been true. Empires have come and they have gone, but God remains firmly fixed on his throne. Though humans have faced threats to freedoms, we do to this very day. We have faced totalitarian regimes, we do to this very day, and we will continue. It never diminishes the fact that God reigns over all, everything. In countries like China and North Korea, God reigns. In our day-to-day struggles, God reigns. In times of diminishing morality, God reigns. In the culture of death that dominates the present, God reigns. God is reigning and leading his people. The question that we must constantly answer is, will we stand with and for him? Will we proclaim his lordship? Will we, by the power of the Spirit, say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word, this power of it this morning, the scriptures, which are so beautiful and unique and what they accomplish and what they speak. Be with us, I pray. May your mercy meet us, I pray. May your grace sustain us, I pray. May we stand with you against all the powers of hell in this world that come against us. They are as nothing before you. Father, may we hide ourselves in your refuge and live for you, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.